Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17. By faith, Abram, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. So last time we looked at some of the first examples of faith from the Old Testament, and then he continues, and we've already seen quite a bit on Abram we actually split the part in Abram on two and then he focuses quite a lot on Moses on which I would also 
like to focus. But so, what do we read in verse 17? What did Abram do by faith, except for the other things we've already read about? What did Abram do by faith in verse 17? He offered up Isaac. Now, when you're small, you don't quite understand what was the big deal, because when you're small, you tend to think that it's much easier for my parents to offer me than to offer themselves. But of course, when you've got children of your own, then you know you'd much rather die than offer up your kid. So that's the one thing that... Just the fact that this was his child, his beloved child. And Isaac was his only child. I mean, maybe if he had 20 children, it wouldn't have been so tough to give up one. But sure, this is his only child. And then, what is the big thing that makes this such a big act of faith? It is that Isaac was the one through whom God had promised, through Isaac shall your descendants be called. Remember, um, when Abram wavered in faith, um, his wife Sarah told him, take my maid, what was her name? Whatever, Rachel, no. Anyway, Hagar, thank you. And Abram took Hagar, and her son was born, And Abram said to God, Oh, but let Ishmael live before you. And God said, I will bless, I will bless Ishmael, but Isaac is the one through whom your descendants shall be called. So when God asked Abram to offer up Isaac, God was asking him to kill the one through whom God said that Abram's descendants would come. You see what that major thing this is. He had waited 99 years or 100 years for this child. This was the child of promise. And this was the only heir. This was the only one through whom his descendants were going to come. And God said, offer him up. What enabled Abram to do this, according to verse 19? Yes, but what specific faith in verse 19? Raise up people from the dead. Yes. Abram believed that God is able to raise the dead because he did not know how it was going to work out he didn't know that the that a ram was coming that a substitute would be sent he simply went in faith not knowing how it was going to work out but he had this conviction this belief that god is able even to raise people from the dead So if God asks me to kill my son, then God will somehow bring him back to life. There's an incredibly 
important message in here for anyone who wants to live by faith. It is this. You never need to contradict God's word. You never need to go against God's commandments or God's way of doing things because you think that is necessary to make things work out. You don't have to commit a sinful act in order to make something work out for the glory of God. You can obey God and do exactly what God says and you can trust God to somehow, even miraculously, work out the consequences. Because Abram could have easily said, but listen, if I offer up my only son, then God's promise is going to fail. It's incumbent upon me not to offer up my son because that's going to destroy God's promise. But Abram didn't argue like that. He said, I must obey God and I will trust God to work out the consequences. And obviously there are many applications you can think of um, in practical day-to-day living. But this principle we must get. Don't think you need to help God or you need to do evil in order that good may result. Don't think you need to um, somehow go against God's command or do something that's wrong just so that something will occur. Oh, I had to lie to protect that one or something like that. It's not necessary to do things in that way. Because God is able to raise even the dead. God does not ask us to work out or sort out the future. God asks us to obey Him. God does not ask us to make everything work out in the end. He does that. He works all things together for good for those who love Him. But God expects obedience from us. The only way you will obey God, the only way you will do things like Abram did here, is if you really are convicted, if you really believe God. You see, this is the kind of faith that you can't talk about. You can say, I believe, oh, I believe God's promise is true, I believe God's going to do what he said, but you're not going to kill your son if you're merely talking. He was thoroughly convinced that after the blood had flowed out of Isaac, Isaac could still live again, because God could make him live again. That that is what enabled him to obey. A conviction, a trust, a full reliance upon God, a full persuasion that God is truthful and powerful and almighty. And he said, and then he says, from which he also received him back as a type, in a figure, because Isaac was as good as dead. Concerning Abram. Abram had already given Isaac over to death as far as himself was concerned. 
He fully intended to kill his son when he lifted up the knife. So, Abram had already done the, the emotional thing of giving his son over to death. And so he received his son back from the dead in a figure, speaking figuratively. Then he named some other examples. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. So, by faith, Isaac was enabled to prophesy, to speak ahead of time about things which would come on the descendants later. Now, there's a big emphasis on the descendants in this chapter because it's the promised land that was promised to Abram and his descendants. And that's all very important. That will tie, you'll see how that ties in right at the end. Just make a note of the descendants. Again, in verse 21, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So again, he, he blessed them concerning things which would happen to the descendants in the future. But he also worshipped. True faith leads you to worship. And worship is not just singing songs in the church. Worship is revering and adoring and loving God. I'm pretty sure Joseph wasn't singing when he was leaning on the top of his staff, but he worshipped God. And that's something to think about. Because in our praise and worship culture of today, many people simply... uh, It's really as strange as as this. If the music is up-tempo, then it's praise, and if it's slow music, then it's worship. It's just really strange. What I'm trying to get at is often just this repeating of songs which you know so well tends to be very mindless. So it's just a, it just gives you a feeling. And when people have a feeling during singing, they consider that to be worship. But it's very good for you to use your mind to think great thoughts about God, to to start praising and worshipping God with words in prayer, not just singing a song that you know, but actually thinking about the greatness of God and worshipping Him intelligently. But worship includes all our life as well, although that is not what is in focus here. Remember that. Uh, I remember reading some, I think it was Juan Carlos Ortiz who once said, at one stage, he, he was Pentecostal in South America, and at one stage he told his congregation, we're going to worship the Lord and praise the Lord with no hallelujahs, praise the Lord's, amens, or one or two other phrases. He said, you've got to think of something else to tell the Lord now, um, which was actually a very good exercise. But all that verse 21 is reminding us of is that 
Faith is what leads you to worship. Without faith it is impossible to please God. But if you really believe in God, then you will worship Him. You will adore Him. You will love Him. You will declare His praise for who He is. And when did He worship? As He was dying, leaning on the top of His staff. That's right before the end of His life in Genesis 49. Right till the end, He was worshipping the Lord. Again, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He told his sons, listen, or his brothers, God is going to take us out of this place. Why did he say that? Because God had promised that to Abram. Your descendants shall be strangers in a foreign country for 400 years and then I will bring them out. Joseph said, that's going to happen. Joseph was king over all of Egypt. But Joseph didn't want to stay in Egypt. He said, we're going to go out of this place and take my bones to the promised land. I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. Although he was the king in Egypt, although that was the place of his prosperity, of his life, yet he said, that is not the promised land. And that's so important. And then touching on that theme, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The king said, kill all the boys. But because Moses' parents believed in God, they did not kill Moses. Belief in God, faith in God, real faith, sets you free from fearing man, from doing what man expects you to do. Remember, this is the king's edict. And the kings in those days were absolute authority. They did just what they wanted. You couldn't resist the king. And yet they resisted the king. Why? Because they believed God. And it's only if you believe God that you are able to stand when big things like the pressure of a king's edict come against you. And then Moses himself, which ties in with Joseph's example. Some of the greatest verses in Scripture. By faith, Moses when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to his reward. Many people have given up much for their faith in God, but Moses is right near the top of the list. He grew up in Pharaoh's palace. He was known as a son of 
Sarah's daughter. But yet, he refused to be called that. People, he literally fell into the royal family. He, you would say today using worldly speech, had the greatest lucky break any man could have. He was, wasn't even an Egyptian, but here he was in the Egyptian royal family. He could have been part of the royal family, might have even ascended to the throne or whatever. But he refused to live in that situation. He said, I am not the son of this daughter of Pharaoh. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Rather than live in luxury in the royal palace of Egypt, he chose to be ill-treated, to be an outcast. He chose to be mistreated, to become an enemy of Pharaoh. He rather wanted to be with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He wanted to be known as an Israelite. Why? Because God had made the promises to Abram and to his descendants. God had not made the promises to the Egyptians. He said, I'll rather be with them and be ill-treated, badly treated, than Enjoy the world, the passing pleasures of sin. Now here it clearly says that sin is pleasurable. Of course, sin often has unpleasurable consequences, but there are many sinful things which are pleasurable, enjoyable. It's fun, it's exciting, that's why people do it. But what does it say about these pleasures of sin? They pass. They come to an end. And one John says, The world passes away, and its desires pass away, but he who does the will of God remains forever. You see, it's all about whether you can look with an eternal perspective or not. You just have to read these verses to see. If you don't have an eternal perspective, then you can't get the Bible right. Then you can't get Christianity right. Because speaking simply for here and now, Moses did the most stupid thing he could do. All Moses had to do to have a great life in Pharaoh's palace is just 
to play along with the game. But he gave that all up to lead a bunch of rebellious people through the desert for 40 years. Why? Well, verse 26, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He knew that the Messiah, Christ, would be born from the Jews. He, even though he lived in the Old Testament, looked forward in faith to Christ. Here you can see believers in the Old Testament looked forward in faith to Christ because it says he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. So what do you consider the greatest riches? Do you I put two men before you. The one man is poorly clothed, doesn't always have enough to eat, doesn't always have a place to sleep. He is an outcast from his family and that's all because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. The other man is as rich as Donald Trump and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and you name, well he's dead now, but you name them all together. He's got, whatever, 500 billion billion dollars in his bank account. Which of them are the richest? And this rich guy doesn't believe in Christ. The answer is, the poor guy is the richest guy. Because he's got Christ, and if you've got Christ, then you've got more than all the riches of the world. But do you value Christ like that? Is it more valuable for you to be mistreated for the sake of Christ than to have all the money you could ever want? Only you will know whether you you consider the reproach of Christ greater reward than the treasures of Egypt. Remember treasures, stores of gold and silver in Pharaoh's palace. Only you would know which you truly value most. Moses valued the reproach of Christ most because he was looking to the reward. He knew there was an eternal reward that far outweighs all the silver and gold of Egypt. And when you've got that perspective, then you can let go of things of the world. Then you can live like a crazy person in the world, give up things of the world, have a tough life, all for the sake of Christ, if you've got that perspective. But if you don't have that perspective, if you're not looking to the reward, then you will just start saying, oh, well, I've got to make the best of what I've got here now. I've got to make the best of this life now. See, you must have the eternal perspective. Again, verse 27, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king 
wasn't afraid of Pharaoh. He left Egypt, he left that all behind. Unafraid of Pharaoh. For he endured, he persevered, he continued as seeing him who is unseen. It was if he, as if he could see God. He was so sure of the reality of God. He was so focused on God that he was like a man who could see God whom no one else could see. But because he could see Him, therefore he persevered. Therefore he kept on going. And enduring is a greater challenge to faith oftentimes than these once-off great events. Just endearing, endearing, endearing. But he endured because he was like a man who saw the unseen God. He was so convinced about the reality of God, so trusting in the promises of God, so focused on God, that he could live in a way which was strange to the world. He could live in a way that people could not understand. He could love someone whom people couldn't see. The atheist looks at the Christian and says, What a crazy man. Closing his eyes and saying words into the sky. Singing songs of love to someone who doesn't exist. Poor fool. That's what the atheist sees when he sees a Christian. But the one who really knows is God, he will persevere. Because when no one else can see God, he still knows God is there. It doesn't mean that he physically saw God. It says, as seeing him who is unseen. Like someone who can actually see God. That's the way that he endured only when you keep your eyes on Christ that you can endure. Then by faith he kept the Passover, which again testified about the sacrifice of Christ and the sprinkling of blood, of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. When God said, you must do this, then he believed God. God had done had sent many plagues to Egypt, and then God said, I'm going to send this plague. And some of the previous plagues, God had protected the Israelites. But in this plague, God said, you must take lamb and sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the doorposts, otherwise the destroying angel is going to destroy your firstborn as well. And then Moses didn't go and, oh, but I've seen before, God kills the Egyptians and keeps us alive. Um, God fights against them and he's for us. So we'll just do it like it's been done before. No, he believed God and he did what God said. Simple. Then by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. They went through the sea when God told them to go through and they passed through the sea on dry land 
the Egyptians died then again by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days also the example of Rahab the harlot in verse 31 she did not perish when all of Jericho perished why? she believed in the God of Israel she hid the spies she took a great risk in hiding the spies but she did that because she believed that the God of the Israelites is the true God and by faith she did not perish when all the people around her were destroyed and that's very important because Rahab is not an Israelite in in this testimony about Rahab you see that God would also justify the Gentiles through faith you see the other examples we've seen are all Israelites you can say oh well that's wonderful faith for the Israelites and they get saved but here in Rahab's case you see that God actually saves the Gentiles the non-Jews through faith as well and even back there in the Old Testament you already had a shadow a sign, a type that God would one day justify the Gentiles through faith and then he says, there are so many other examples. Time will fail me if I tell of all these other guys, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. They did various things. By faith they conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They did what was right. They obtained promises. They believed God for things and what God promised he did. They shut the mouths of lions. He's of course talking about Daniel. Quench the power of fire. Well, for instance, Shadrach, Misach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, um, escaped from the edge of the sword. Well, there were many examples of that, uh, where the Israelites were saved. From weakness were made strong became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I think of Saul's son, Jonathan, who went up with his one armor-bearer. They went up to a Philistine garrison, and they started slaughtering, and God was with them, and a mighty victory came about. Or David, who took on Goliath, because David believed in the Lord his God. And then, in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some people even came back from the dead because they were those who believed God. And that's really the place where the verse break should be because all of those things up until there sound wonderful, strong, victory, success, prosperity, it sounds great. And then suddenly he says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. You see, women received back their dead by resurrection. But then he says, but other people were tortured and they refused to be released. They refused to recount their faith in Christ. They refused to recount their faith in God. They were tortured 
They would not be released because they wanted a better resurrection than the woman's children had. They didn't want to come back to this life. They wanted eternal life and eternal glory. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. They were made a mockery of. They were scourged. They were whipped. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. All of this happened to them by faith, because of faith. He says they were stoned, thrown with stones until they died. They were sawn in two. That is pretty graphic and pretty violent. But they were actually sawn in two. They were tortured in the most horrible ways imaginable. They were tempted in all kinds of ways. They were put to death with the sword. So, these are all these martyrs, all these people killed for their faith in God, killed for their faith in Christ. And there's there can even be a kind of glory in that. But it's extremely difficult to go through. What will enable you to go through that only if you believe God? I mean, why would you let someone kill you? Why would you have your life on earth cut off right now except if you believe that something better awaits you? But then there were not only the martyrs, there were these poor nobodies. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. They didn't have proper clothes. They didn't have a place to stay. They were badly treated all for their faith in God men of whom the world was not worthy what does that mean something that you sometimes hear quoted but you see exactly what it means from the context these people so much belonged to the age to come. These people so much belong to eternity, to heaven, that they just didn't fit in this world. That this world wasn't even worthy to have them walk on it. And therefore the world totally rejected them. The world bestows its honors upon those who serve the world. The world bestows its honors upon those who follow the ways of the world. The world bestows its honors on those who worship the prince of the world, who is the Satan, the devil. The world glorifies them. Who do the people make a big deal about? Oh, about 
musicians and celebrities who sing songs in which they celebrate all kinds of unrighteousness, immorality and fornication and, and all kinds of sinful things are celebrated in that music. And the world says, oh, wonderful. Let's all go and listen to whoever's coming to visit South Africa. The world celebrates those who achieve something, who've done something, who've won a World Cup, who have made great riches for themselves. But about those who serve Christ with all their heart, the world says, just get them out of my sight. The, um, an example is a one old missionary that I heard about when he came back on the ship to his home country. He couldn't afford a, a cabin with a sea view. He took one of the inside cheap cabins. And there were some celebrities on this ship as well. And when they got to the harbor, the red carpet was rolled out for these film stars and whoever to walk on. And he just, you know, had to quietly get on shore with no applause, no one waiting for him. A sad, pathetic figure. Because the world wasn't worthy of him. The world doesn't care for that. You see, the world wants to honor those who will serve the idols of the world. And those who won't serve the idols of the world, but who serve Christ and who live for eternity, the world says, I don't want you here because you are messing up what I'm living for. And that's why, I've said it many times, but that's why it is so wicked, so evil, so abominable, chivalak, what the churches are teaching with all this, oh, build your own little kingdom in this world. This chapter just shouts out against it. Understand this, Jesus says it in John, the prince of this world has been judged. This world, this world system, with its leader, the devil, has been judged. And if you're going to live for this world, you're going to be judged and condemned with this world. And then he goes on about these people of faith that they wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They weren't welcome in the world. But they have an eternal welcome waiting for them which far outweighs all the hospitality of the world. And then he says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They were all still looking forward. They were all still expecting when they died. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. What is he saying? Well, I said something about the descendants that will be tied up at the end of the chapter. There's this whole thing about the descendants in this chapter. Because what Israel's history is about, what Abram's descendants 
are about is all about this, as Galatians says, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and he says seed in the singular, not in the plural, because he's referring to Christ. I'm just paraphrasing Galatians 4, but that's what it teaches. It's all about Christ who would be born from the descendants of Abraham. And all of these men of faith and women of faith of the Old Testament, they were all still expecting the promise, still looking forward. But he says, now in Christ, the promise has come. God has reserved something better or provided something better for us. In Christ, we have what these people were expecting, were longing, were hoping for. In Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of that expectation, of that faith, of that hope. And he says they would only be perfected with us. Only after Christ had come, and suffered and died and um, rose again from the dead to eternal glory, only after that would all these saints of the Old Testament be perfected with the saints of the New Testament. Because it's all about Christ. So, these people had faith, they believed God, they trusted God, and there's all these incredible important principles and lessons for us about how we should live But in the end, the object of their faith was Christ, the Messiah who would come. And in Christ we have the fullness. We have everything we need. And and what is he saying to these people? He's saying, if you've got Christ, then you're better off than David who killed Goliath by faith. You're better off than Moses who did this by faith and Abraham who did that by faith. Because it's all about Christ. And then, of course, if they, who were still waiting, did such incredible things because of their faith and their expectation of the Messiah, then how much more should we who have seen everything, to whom it's been revealed? To us it's not a mystery. We, we saw what happened. We know what happened. God became man. He died on a cross to bear our sins. He made a perfect, full sacrifice for our sins. He rose again on the third day. We know what's happened. We've seen the whole story. They were looking forward. They only partially understood. We've seen what it's all about. We have all the more reason to cling to Christ, to believe God, to live holy lives, to live by faith, not to fall away from Christ. So, in Christ we have everything, but we must cling to Him and follow Him and live for the eternal kingdom and the eternal reward that is coming.